welcome to a special bonus edition of our show, Her Story on the Rocks. Typically, it would be me and Katie sitting around drinking cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to women who are writing about history. Today, we have a very special guest here with us, Laura Cuman. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's really a delight to be here. I'm so excited. Laura is an author, a blogger, has a law degree, teaches cooking and food history, and she is here to talk about her newest book, All Stirred Up, Suffrage Cookbooks, Food, and the Battle for Women's Right to Vote. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I guess I would begin by saying I'm a recovered lawyer. (laughs) I used to say recovering, but I think I'm done. Um, I've always been interested in food and cooking and history, but when I was working as a lawyer, I really didn't have time to do anything but practice law and raise my family. Um, I used to joke that um, I would tell my kids that every type of pasta was a different dinner so that I could feed them broccoli and rotini one night and ziti and uh, cut up vegetables the next night. Um, But in any event, I always planned when they were older to write a book for them on how to become independent in the kitchen because they kind of, as teenagers are wont to do, uh, they would get some friend calling them and they would leave the minute we started to make something. Well, it turned out that they don't really read books about cooking. They just look online for recipes. So I started a blog and I didn't think I was going to write a book, but then an editor asked me to write uh, the Hamilton cookbook, which I did. And that kind of got me started and interested in writing again as a book as, as opposed to a blog, which is kind of a different animal. Yeah, that's so incredible. When I was reading your like rap sheet of all the things you've done, I was like, wow, <laughs> that's a, that's a lot of things to squeeze into one life. Oh, you're sweet. So obviously in our show, we love, love, love cocktails. We do a lot of drinking. Um, Is there any, do you, the women in the suffrage movement, they couldn't really drink, right? That wasn't part of their deal. They were mostly into temperance, right? Well, a whole group of them were into temperance, but there were a number of women in the suffrage movement who did drink. And in fact, I found one woman who's pretty well known, uh, Julia Ward Howe, you know, the battle hymn of the Republic. Mm -hmm. Well, she was a suffragist. She loved suffrage, but she also liked her liquor. And at 91 years old, at her last luncheon engagement, she had champagne So you should go right ahead and enjoy a a cocktail or a glass of uh, sparkling wine with your suffrage story. Oh, that's so great. So when we publish your book on social media, we'll put it out with a glass of champagne for all the ladies. Well, I went out and looked for among the drinks in the book Mm -hmm. to see which ones had alcohol. And in fact, there are a couple of um, different recipes. There's eggnog. There's mulled wine. Um, There is something called fruit punch where I've suggested, well, you could certainly add some sparkling wine. Um, And so, you know, I think in given Julie Ward Howe's interest in champagne, uh, you know, I'd say any of those are a good, good choice. Yeah. And who doesn't love drinking while they're cooking? That's my favorite thing. (laughs) That's why I never, I never use wine that isn't drinkable when I cook. 
Pro tip. That's a pro tip. <laughs> pro tip. For free. So before we dive into this book, can we talk a little bit about setting the scene? What is life like in the kitchen for women during the suffrage movement? Well, it really depends what part of the suffrage movement you're talking about, because suffrage lasted for over 70 years. And if you're talking about the beginning of the movement in 1848, well, that's a time when, you know, there aren't electric lights in the kitchen. The stoves are very rudimentary. Uh, Almost all food is prepared from scratch by women. It's taking hours. But by the time the 19th Amendment, which is the amendment that gave women the right to vote, uh, by the time that's ratified in 1920, there's canning, there are electric lights, there are uh, stoves, you know, there it's a whole different kettle of fish, if I can use that expression, in the kitchen. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I just always think about how um, how much I use the microwave and how I would be at a complete disadvantage if I had to uh, defrost something these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I, I mean, I looked for things that really surprised me. And one of the things that really surprised me was that in 1848, when the suffrage movement began, there were no you know those canning jars you see now in the hardware stores and the grocery stores? You know, ball, mason canning jars. They didn't exist. What those, did they put stuff in? <laughs> well, they had jars. But, I mean, we think of mason jars as being around forever, but they haven't been. Wow. So I know also another thing that pops into my head when I'm – thinking about like suffrage is I think of the, these like white outfits with the sash and the picket signs. How was food used in conjunction with suffrage? Well, what you're describing the white, the women in the long white dresses with the sashes, that was my understanding of suffrage. And it's a very superficial kind of stereotypical suffrage understanding. And really the people, the women who used, uh, who wanted the right to vote and used food to get it, they were what I call the forgotten suffragists. You know, they were the women in the mainstream. They weren't necessarily going to marches. They didn't wear, you know, long white dresses with banners. They didn't pick it necessarily. And they were very into using their mainstream skills as housewives and as people who love to cook and who did cook and cared for their families. And they use those skills to kind of begin conversations about suffrage, which if you think about it is a very sophisticated marketing tool. So it really is. It's a good way to bring people into a conversation, right? Sit down over a meal, a little chat and chew. Or Canvas with a cookbook under your arm. You know, you take a cookbook, knock on a door. Somebody doesn't want to let you in, but you say, you know, I've got a lot of recipes here and I'd be glad to give you this cookbook for free or some of the cookbooks, which were huge, they sold for a dollar. Some of them were small. They sold them for 35 cents. But in any event, they were beginning the conversation with food and then only later moving on to Well, you know, the woman who gave us this recipe, she believes in the right to vote and she thinks you and I ought to have it. 
And I bet that was really helpful too, before we could just jump online and get on your blog to see what to cook tonight. Well, in 1848, when suffrage began, most women didn't need cookbooks and they didn't use cookbooks. They knew what they were cooking and they cooked without recipes. I don't know if you, you know, your grandma, if you have ever seen anybody in your grandmother's generation cook, but you know, it's a little of that, a pinch of this, a handful of that. And if they write down a recipe, uh, they're not really writing in, uh, you know, in specific measurements. And that's the way things were in 1848. It wasn't until much later that really people got into the kitchen who needed cookbooks and needed recipes. Wow. Interesting. Is part of that um, happening in the United States because you have this mixture of cultures and people want to know what other people are making? Well, that's certainly true, but it really began before then. I mean, also as women left the home, you know, to go out and work, which really didn't start until the very late 19th century. I mean, we're talking now middle-class women. I mean, lower, lower middle-class and there were always, of course, working women, you know, and there were women who worked on a farm or in a rural area. And, you know, you might not consider that working outside the home because their home is their farm. Mm. But um, I'm talking about, you know, middle-class women in cities only began to leave their homes to work in uh, the late 19th century. And when they did, they became less attached to learning those things that, you know, before then, every woman knew because she growing up had just helped her mom bake the bread and, you know, make everything that was needed for every meal of the day. Right, right. And there was no cereal, by the way. You couldn't just grab a box of cereal off off the shelf. Oh, no. (laughs) How would I feed my children? (laughs) It'd be terrible. (laughs) Um, No Pop-Tarts. I know. Gosh, I need those toaster strudels every day. Um, I think, you know, we typically think of the kitchen as such a traditionally female space, and it's such an important space in the home. How did it impact women in like both a positive and a negative way? Is that, you know, a good space in the sense that this is the space that I'm in control and I am really like functioning within this family and or was it like, we actually need you there so you can't leave? Well, it was used positively by the women who were pro-suffrage, and it was used in a different way by the people who were against suffrage. The people who were pro-suffrage, both men and women, you know, would show, would like to show that you could both be skillful in the kitchen and be interested in politics. You know, what's, why the contradiction? I mean, after all, men were expected to do some things in the home or to earn money and then be interested in politics. Why couldn't women have two or more interests? Um, the people who are against suffrage, who, by the way, were called the aunties, they like to think that women and that domesticity and cooking were really women's place, that that's where women belonged and they didn't belong in the political arena. Right, right. And did you, when you started making this book, was there a chef or a recipe or something that really inspired you to choose this? Um, because you, you mentioned you were blogging and then you did the Hamilton cookbook. What, what brought you to this idea of suffrage? 
Well, it was happenstance, but um, I was looking around for a topic that combined food and history. I was interested in um, American food. Uh, you know, I was interested in the food that I would describe as the food I grew up with. And I found a suffrage cookbook online. And I really, once I found one, it was kind of like a treasure hunt for me to see if I could, how many I could find and what their story was. I was really fascinated by them. And so that was kind of my inspiration. You know, once I found one, I didn't know whether any others existed. And once I found more than one, I realized that I wanted to keep going until I knew absolutely every suffrage cookbook that had ever existed. That's pretty cool. So it sounds like you're, you, you come across this one book and then your research just kind of started exploding in all directions to find all of these different books. Did you research like any specific women or specific time periods while you did it? Well, I started off researching the suffrage cookbooks, which led me into realizing I needed to understand suffrage better. And once I started to understand suffrage and how long the battle was, I realized that I really needed to understand what life was like in 1848 when the movement began. And of course, it began, we all have heard, I think, of the Seneca Falls Convention. But I really didn't know anything about it. And I had no idea what life was like in 1848. So I started to look at that. And then it just kind of took off. And at the end, I thought I was done. I mean, it, part of the writing of this that was, to me, interesting and, and a learning experience was that I handed in a manuscript. And the editor came back to me and said, you need one more chapter. And I was like, ugh. <laughs> No, don't make me. And she said, well, this goes up to the end of the suffrage story, but it really doesn't tell us what suffrage means to us. Mm. And so I went back and I thought about it and I wrote another chapter. And I'm so glad I did that. I mean, that chapter really, for me, it's very meaningful. It really, you know, I no longer think of suffrage as history. I think of it as a story that's continuing and every bit of the news that I read is now filtered through what I know about suffrage, which that's, may seem odd, but you know. No, I think that's really beautiful. I think it, um, it sounds like your relationship with the idea of suffrage for women in particular has, has changed and grown through the writing process. It really has. And, you know, Part of what I realized is that I live, we live in a time when we shouldn't take voting for granted. I mean, there is a lot of voter disenfranchisement going on, and there are a lot of people whose political aim is to prevent people from voting. And you realize that it's not just what's written in the Constitution or in laws. It's really about whether people feel empowered to vote whether and whether they're motivated to vote and whether people are stopping them from voting. I mean, it's really, it's a complicated story. And it's not just about the 19th Amendment. You know, it's really about a whole lot more than just what's written in the Constitution. Yeah, it, it sounds like 
there's so much that people can relate to, right? When they, you know, get this book that you made and are there concepts that you want to jump out at people kind of like that, that you're just saying that this is an ongoing story that we need to keep our focus on? Well, there are, and there, there's something that really inspires me, which is that, you know, this is a 70 year long battle. There is only one woman who was at Seneca Falls, who was still alive in 1920 when the 19th Amendment was ratified. And if you think about that and you read the stories of the number of defeats and the the terrible things that uh, the antis did in their pursuit of preventing women from voting, you know, you look at what's going on today and, and if you're discouraged you say, you know, I can't be discouraged. I mean, think about those women. They were, you know, thrown to the ground. They had to dust themselves off, get up, and start all over again. Mm. And they had to start all over again, sometimes more than once. You know, there were states in which referenda to give women the vote or constitutional amendments or state laws they were defeated multiple times in the same state and they kept getting up mm. and they kept fighting. It's really very encouraging and very inspiring. It is. That's quite, a, it's an inspiring thing to remember, especially I know a lot of times on social media and on the news, everything's like, Oh, since 2020, everything's been a mess. Right. But there's so it, it's been a mess for a while. <laughs> Oh, it's been a big mess for a while. And, you know, there are some stories in the book that will just make your hair stand on end. I mean, do you know that women had the right to vote in New Jersey in the 18th century? That is in the seven, late 1700s. And the men of New Jersey in the legislature took that right away from them. Mm. Women in Utah had the right to vote and Congress took the right away from the women of Utah because they were pissed about Utah's polygamy. Now, you tell me why the women should be punished for Utah having polygamy. Not their fault. (laughs) But that's what happened. So when people pick up this book, what can they expect in terms of layout? Is it laid out more like a cookbook, more like a history, or more like a combination of the two? It's not laid out like any other book you've ever seen. <laughs> so you begin with a timeline. And, you know, the timeline is really for people like me who have very short attention spans. <laughs> and where you find out what's going on in the suffrage movement, what's going on in American world history, and what's going on in food at the same time. So, for example, 1907, I think it was, do you know when Hershey's Kisses were invented? I assumed they've been around forever, right? I mean, I've been eating them forever. (laughs) But it turns out that they were invented in, I think, 1907, And the year they were invented was the first year in which in any country there was universal suffrage and women as candidates. And that was in Finland. And, you know, you might think that's trivia, but the fact is, as in terms of how suffrage goes, you see that there's Finland in 1907. Well, women in the U.S. didn't get the right to vote till 1920 in at least 
in the federal constitution. Anyway, so it begins with that timeline. It goes on to, to tell you what life was like when the suffrage movement began. And then it goes on with all of the stories of both suffrage and what was going on at the same time in history and in food. And each chapter has some recipes from the suffrage cookbook. And the recipes, which you may have seen, they're in both the original and in an adaptation that I did so that, you know, any reader or cook could make them today. Mm. And the first chapter has, you know, sort of the first course, breakfast and brunch. The last chapter, the one I mentioned about, you know, what does suffrage mean to us? That's desserts and sweets. And in between, you know, there's everything, everything you could make a suffrage banquet, you could make a suffrage tea, or you can just make some suffrage brownies and gorge yourself. Time to go to the school bake sale with my yeah, suffrage really. brownies. <laughs> That's so cool. Did you have a favorite recipe that you ended up making out of this cookbook? Well, I, I will admit that I'm a, I'm a sweetaholic. <laughs> and my favorite recipe is the gingerbread because it's got sour cream in it, which is just not an ingredient I ever associate with gingerbread. And there's actually a gingerbread in the Hamilton cookbook, which is a little bit complicated and is also very good, but this one's really easy. And it comes from one of the suffrage cookbooks and it's just delicious. Mm. When um, people get uh, this book is, do you have any suggestions for people who are like novice cookers or novice chefs? Well, I would say, you know, you can look through the cookbook, you can look through the, the ends of the chapters, the, the recipes and, you know, various people who were famous gave recipes to the people who put together the suffrage cookbooks. So some of the suffrage cookbooks have recipes from people you might know. And one of the recipes that I put in was from a guy named Jack London. Did you ever read Call of the Wild or yes. White Bang? Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, and there's a picture of him in the book. He was drop dead gorgeous. <laughs> and he and his wife were big time suffragists. And he has a recipe for <laughs> cheese stuffed celery. Okay. If you can't make cheese stuffed celery, <laughs> three, like three or four ingredients, throw it in a, in a, you know, uh, the hollow of a, of a piece of celery and chomp on it. Perfect. I can do that. I can absolutely do that. <laughs> Not really. And I write, my recipes, by the way, are written for people who really want, they're not confident in the kitchen and they want to know, well, when you, you know, when you mix this, how much do you mix it? What does the batter look like? You know, when should you take it out? You know, or there, and I actually have a couple of videos. I have one video. There's a, a recipe in the book for spatchcock chicken. You know what that is? No. Okay. Well, spatchcocking is like a big deal these days. Kenji Lopez Alt, if you know who he is. Uh, anyway, he, he runs this restaurant in San Francisco and he loves to, to do this, which is you take the backbone of a chicken and you kind of flatten it out. Well, I have a video with my husband spatchcocking a chicken. So you can see, I mean, you know, if you don't like to read, if you're very visual, just watch the video. Oh, that's awesome. Because I mean, our listeners are used to drinking along with us, but they're not used to eating along with us. So we're going to have to get them to start making some recipes. Oh, well, you know, 
And there's some easy, there are other easy ones. I mean, yeah. So I guess where can people find you? Where can they find this book? This has been so fun talking, but I'm sure now everybody is hungry and wants to make some suffrage banquets for dinner. Well, the book is at any of your local independent bookstores. It's, I like, there's an online uh, independent bookstore retailer called bookshop.org. And I have my own little bookshop page, so you can get it there. Or um, you can, of course, use any of the other online retailers. Uh, You can, I think you can just get it anywhere books are sold. And I do a a blog, which is called Mother Would Know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've got another sort of author page at lauracuman.com. And, you know, there are lots of places to find me, find my book, talk to me. I'm on all kinds of social media. And, uh, you know, keep up the conversation. It's been such a blast talking to you. And it is really inspiring to hear your take on not only the history of the suffrage movement, but also the present of the suffrage movement, because it is an important thing to remember. Well, and another really important thing to just think about when you when you talk and read about suffrage is that the right of women to vote is not just something that is in the history books and it's not just something that involved women. And so like, if you ask me who my favorite suffragist was, I would tell you it's a man. It's actually Frederick Douglass. And so, you know, when you, when you think about suffrage, you should really, it's a very surprising complex story. And, you know, I think there are lots of, people who would benefit from thinking back on history and not just assuming that it was, you know, oh, you know, the story of the pilgrims, the story, I don't know what, but, you know, very, very stereotypical and very, very much uh, the stories we were told in school. I mean, this, this book is suffrage from the point of view that you were never taught in school, because I certainly didn't learn anything about suffrage in school, and I never learned about the forgotten suffragists. So, Thank you so much. This has been a blast, and I can't wait for everybody to get this book and drink some of their fruit juice and mulled wine and champagne and just sit around and read it and make some recipes. Well, enjoy, and uh, don't forget to go out and vote. Yeah, everybody vote. You do it. (laughs) Every chance you get. Always. Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.